some brief points through the different sections um, as we go through. And just for review, remember in chapter 8, we had the longest quotation from the New Testament in chapter 8, verse 7 through verse 12. And one of the things we mentioned is that the way that the Old Covenant is uh, referred to in chapter 8, verse 5, is that it was everything was according to a pattern that was shown. Um, and how the fulfillment of those things, the, the tangible nature of the fulfillment, uh, puts us in a position where we're, we're getting the reality of the things that were foreshadowed beforehand. One of the illustrations I used is like children's toys, like toy phones or toy cars. You know, it's, it's cute when a child uses those things, and those things are obvious imitations of the real things that are used by adults. But those, those toys usually have their value and they're fun to play with because children see their parents using the real thing. So because a child sees their parent using a smartphone or you know, driving a car, that makes toy cars and toy phones enjoyable to play with. But really those things are just imitations of the real thing. You're not actually calling somebody even though a little electronic voice talks to you in a toy phone. And the little car is not going to get you anywhere even though it has wheels and maybe like a little toy engine inside of it. And the New Covenant, what the point being emphasized to the Hebrew Christians here is the fulfillment of everything in Jesus puts everything in the Old Covenant then in perspective. So chapter 9 and chapter 10 is going to talk about two things. Chapter 9 is going to focus primarily on the blood of Jesus and how the blood of animals foreshadowed the blood of Jesus and the greater value of that blood and how the body of the animals that was sacrificed foreshadowed the greater body and will within, giving the body of Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for us to bring us near to God. So just as there was a sense in the Old Covenant where in the, in the temple system, in the tabernacle, people were physically coming near, in a sense, to these buildings by the blood of these animals and their sacrifices, Again, ultimately those things were only shadows, as it were, of greater realities that were being pictured very vividly in these things that we now can reflect on and understand better. So chapter 9, um, I'm going to start by looking at chapter 9, verses 1 through 10 and talking more about it. And again, I'm just going to be making brief points to push us through the points being made in the text. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, 
regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So this section contains the briefest summary of what the tabernacle was and everything inside of it. Uh, In the Old Testament in Exodus, uh, you find measurements of the different aspects of the tabernacle and the measurements of the different uh, vessels of worship that were used inside. And you can kind of get lost in the shuffle of all of those details. But really the tabernacle where God's presence was to dwell was actually a very simple structure. Basically, the tabernacle was this rectangular box with two rooms. The first room was a room where the, uh, the priesthood would enter. Um, all priests would enter in to provide uh, service for worship. When you entered into the tabernacle through the veil, on the left side there would be the lampstand, which would be lit at all times. And on the right side was a table with 12 pieces of showbread. And that literally is everything encompassing the regular holy place. At the end of that room, connected to the most holy place, but outside of it, is the altar of incense made of gold. And on that, incense would burn in front of the second veil, which would put you into that second room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. So again, that first room is really, it's very simple. You go in, you've got one piece on your left, the lampstand, You walk in and on the right side is another single object, which is just a table where bread was, and that was it. And then sometimes, again, there would be that altar of incense connected to the most holy place where the priests would burn incense. Zacharias, for example, um, entered into the first room in the temple at the beginning of Luke's gospel to burn incense on that altar. So then you have the second veil separating that first room, the, the holy place, from the holy of holies. The second room is actually even more simple. It's one single object. It's the Ark of the Covenant, which contained uh, the golden jar with the manna, Aaron's rod, which budded, which is from the book of Numbers, which signified Aaron's lineage would be the lineage of the priests and leadership in the priesthood. You had the Ark of the Covenant containing also the tables of the covenant, which would be the Ten Commandments. And on top of that, covering and closing it, which would be the mercy seat. And this was supposed to be symbolic of God's throne uh, overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant. And all of this would form one single object with the cherubim kind of overshadowing with their wings covering over this mercy seat. So the first room, you have the initial two objects with the third being connected to the most holy place and behind the veil, you really just have one object, a very simple structure. Reason why this this is important is all of these objects of worship in various ways symbolize components of our service to God now. One of the primary points that the writer is trying to make is in verse eight, that one of the things that was meant to be apparent is everybody was to realize that the way into that most holy place, we were to see that that was the way of salvation and that the Holy Spirit was signifying the way in had not yet been disclosed while that outer tabernacle was still standing, which in verse 9 was symbolic of this present time where now if you scoot forward, look at chapter 10, verse 19, The the section we're going to be looking at is book-ended with this idea of entering behind the veil, getting into that holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was with the mercy seat. Chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place 
by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So that's what we're working towards, is getting into this idea of what has Jesus done to put an end to this partial system that only, that only signified what we now have? How can we better understand the glory of where we are now in the spirit of Christ by these things that only signified these realities? One, one thing before we move on is the simplicity of their service. In chapter 9 and 10, the blood of Jesus and his body really are not complicated concepts. The blood of Jesus really is inherently one of the fundamental things of our salvation. To become a Christian, we recognize that Jesus suffered on the cross and shed his blood for our sins. And to become a Christian, we recognize that Jesus bodily died on the cross for our sins. So these, these are very simple things. But one of the things that I was talking to Eva about just earlier this week is how much this reminds me of marriage. So the tabernacle, the animals, the blood of the animals, the bodies of the animals, again, these are all simple things. These are clear things. But what the writer is doing is he's striving to have his audience engage themselves and to recognize the depth of what can be understood in heart-changing ways about these simple concepts by all of these different things that God has given to deepen our understanding and deepen our zeal and deepen our passion for God as we understand these things better. And how this relates to marriage. So before I married Eva, there were obviously a lot of things about her character, about her faith, that drew me to be attracted to her and want to marry her in the first place. But now that we are married, the amount of detail that I can see in those same qualities, the, the greater depth that I can see, now draws me to her even more. And that's the same with God and the covenant that we have now. Everything that had been done beforehand, while it gave some kind of window into the glory of God's character, the glory of forgiveness, the glory of his redemption, what we have now is able to give us such a, a more deep and intimate view of those qualities in a way that's much more mature and focused. So in verse 11, that's what the writer is going to begin to do is striving to paint a clearer and more intimate picture of these fundamental qualities that on the surface seem simple, but they can be explored more richly. They can be comprehended with a greater intimacy and how those things are then able to impact us and draw us to God and initiate and instigate within us a greater commitment to God. There's no ceiling to how far those concepts can now be taken because of the view that we're now able to have and the intimacy we now have with God. So verse 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of, of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? One of the things that's going to be portrayed throughout this text is the insufficiency of animals to bring eternal redemption or even adequate redemption 
in a way that really reconciles any, anybody to God. For instance, look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Uh, we're going to get here, but it says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer year by year, continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And look at verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So just as we were talking about with chapter 8 and the ideas of the old covenant really just pointing to the greater realities of the new covenant, the blood of these animals, although it conveyed the ideas of Jesus' sacrifice, the ideas of redemption, the ideas of God giving his life for ours, the ideas of the cost of reconciliation, it wasn't really the form of any of those things in an adequate way of itself. So in verse 14, the blood of Jesus, Jesus offering himself willingly as a living human sacrifice, being both man and God, Jesus containing the fullness of God in bodily form, he himself then is the sufficient sacrifice to not only cleanse our bodies, but notice it says to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus offering himself was meant to inwardly purify us so that we can outwardly, acceptably serve God sacrificially. God in John chapter 4, Jesus says that God is spirit and those who worship must worship God in spirit and truth. I think when you look at the context of Scripture, the idea of worshiping God as spirit is not just emotional or inward engagement. And what I mean by that is sometimes in John 4, verse 24, when it mentions worshiping in spirit, um, what's said is we just need to be inwardly engaged in our worship. And while that's true, worshiping God in spirit, I think, is more the idea of worshiping God in a way consistent with his nature. That if God is spirit... Those who worship him must worship in a way that is connected with who he is. So Jesus offering himself through the eternal spirit is able to bring us life in a way consistent with the way that God is alive. Dead people cannot serve a living God. Dead works cannot be brought before a living God. And so Jesus offering himself through the eternal living spirit is able then to bring us into a condition where we serve God according to the eternal spirit as well. So that leads us to verse 15 and 22 with how Jesus accomplished this. One of the things is his blood and what the blood of Jesus communicates about the seriousness of our covenant with God. Verse 15 through 22. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So when you think about a covenant being made by blood, how serious does that communicate that covenant is? I think one of the things to realize about our covenant with God is understanding the seriousness of the fact that our covenant with God was brought and bought by the blood of Jesus. And I think it's important that we don't take for granted the seriousness of recognizing that we've been bought by blood. We don't see Jesus' blood with our eyes. We don't have Jesus' blood like literally sprinkled on our bodies And so it can be easy to take for granted the gravity of his sacrifice and his blood. And I think this scene helps to portray that seriousness. So just try to picture in your mind for a minute, Moses being on Mount Sinai. So he has the things that are described in verse 19. You've got blood of calves and goats. You've got water and scarlet wool and hyssop. So you imagine now you've got millions of people at the base of this mountain. And you imagine Moses with some basin having this basin full of blood and maybe there's some priests with him who also have basins of this blood. And what they're doing is they're just throwing blood on all the people. And the scroll of the book of the laws being sprinkled with blood. And you imagine people just walking by in mass and blood is being poured on them and you look around and everybody is seeing blood on everybody else around them. You just imagine the mood of that setting at the base of that mountain when that happened. You imagine the seriousness of the commitment they were making by recognizing so viscerally what they were entering into with God and the commitment they were making with God as God had also committed himself to them. And I think that's the idea that the Hebrews needed to understand with the way that they were drifting away from God is their circumstances and how they were suffering was causing them to withdraw from recognizing the focus they needed to have on the seriousness of this covenant the value of this covenant. When you get back to the idea of the tabernacle, when priests would go into the tabernacle and they would be kind of in the midst of this small building with just these few objects of worship, these were all vessels that had been sprinkled with blood. Everything in there had been purified with this blood. And you imagine the simplicity of focus that was within that first veil, even in that first holy place. There wasn't anything in there except those few objects there weren't very many people who would have been there except maybe even even one priest at a time like Zacharias at the beginning of Luke. So again, you just imagine everything else in the world kind of being shut out when they're inside. You imagine the quietness of uh, the, the volume of everything outside being quieted by the thickness of the veils that were surrounding the holy place and forming its walls. You imagine later the temple complex, the thickness of the stone. And again, when you enter into the temple, how quiet it would be inside because you're focused on the objects of service. You are focused on holy things. You are focused on the things that have been redeemed and purified by blood. So what the Hebrew writer is trying to get us to see is that just as the people in the Old Covenant would have been focused on the things that God had purified by blood. Ideally, we at the same time, because of the greater sacrifice and greater value of Jesus' blood, we have even greater reason to be so much more focused on our service to God, which is where he'll get in the end of uh, chapter 10. So let's look at verse 23 through uh, 28. 
Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So Jesus and his suffering the blood that he shed and the suffering that he endured, it's not something that's going to have to be repeated ever again. It's not something that was repeated before it happened. The idea is Jesus' sacrifice was all sufficient. That the sufficiency of his sacrifice was, was great enough to redeem people from the transgressions committed in the first covenant. And just as they connected to his blood by faith, we in the same way in reflecting back on that sacrifice we also connect with his blood by faith in the power of God as well. So in verse 26, one of the main points that the Hebrew writer uh, has already made and will make again again at the end of chapter 10 is that the suffering of Jesus, if we are not moved by what God has given us to convey his suffering, if that is not enough to inspire zeal, if that's not enough to continuously humble us and lead us closer to God, and if that's not going to change us to true and genuine repentance, as we looked at from Isaiah 55, nothing else is going to be given to us that is going to accomplish that. Jesus' sacrifice was God's final and exclusive effort, not only to redeem us, but to purify us into service, wholehearted, complete service. Just as the priest inside the tabernacle wasn't just lounging around. He wasn't just to set up a bed and hang out or play around inside the temple. When he was inside the tabernacle, especially the most holy place once a year, he was there for a reason. And he was there for one reason. And that was to serve according to the way that God had called him. And that's the point the Hebrew writer is making, is everything that God has done has called us to serve in exactly the way that we've been called. And everything he's, he's done and has given is more than adequate to accomplish that purpose. Um, one brief point about this doctrinally. Um, in verse 15 through 22, it mentions that Jesus' death inaugurated the new covenant. So just as a doctrinal point, like the thief on the cross and things that happened before Jesus' death, it's important to recognize the new covenant was not in force and not active until Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's really the point when the New Testament began. And then in verse 23 through 28, another doctrinal point related to that. I mentioned in chapter 8 um, the doctrine of premillennialism. Um, that's an idea that Jesus is going to come back to earth again and he's going to reign in Jerusalem where people will serve God in a lawful way like the law of Moses again, like the whole temple system will be set up anew. All of those things are fundamental misunderstandings of the nature of Christ and his sacrifice and his reign in heaven. Jesus died once for sins on earth 
And that one sacrifice concluded his earthly ministry. And now we wait for him to come again when he will come in verse 28 for salvation without reference to sin to bring us to God. Chapter 10. We're going to just start with verses 1 through 4. So chapter 10 gets more into Jesus' body being sacrificed to bring us to God. Chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, I want to pause on these first four verses to clarify something that I think is easy to misunderstand. I just want to ask one question. Was forgiveness in the Old Testament real? Like, could people in the Old Testament really be forgiven of their sins? So I think sometimes there's an idea that in the Old Testament, they weren't really forgiven. Like, they received something, but it wasn't really the kind of forgiveness that maybe we understand now. I think that's not quite right. Look back at Psalm 50. Um, Something that the psalmists understood when they reflected on the sacrificial system, forgiveness, God's will, even the psalmists understood, even in the Old Testament, the point that the Hebrew writer is making in chapter 10. Look at uh, Psalm chapter 50, uh, verse 7. It says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for all the world is mine, or for the world is mine and all it contains." Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. So notice also that this is the psalm right before David writes in Psalm 51 about his sin with Bathsheba. And even in this psalm, David recognizes that what God was seeking was not ultimately just an animal being offered. Look at Psalm 51, verse uh, 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So, The same psalm, David appeals to God for forgiveness. He recognizes that God is able to forgive him. He recognizes God is able to purify him. But he also recognizes that the forgiveness he is seeking is not based in animal blood or animal sacrifice. So could somebody in the Old Testament receive forgiveness? Well, God promised they could. But I'd appeal to you that what the Hebrew writer is saying is the same thing that the psalmist said and the same thing that really every person of genuine faith would have understood even in the Old Testament that ultimately forgiveness cannot come from animal blood because it's insufficient to cover the cost and that people of faith in the Old Covenant 
needed to have, needed to seek God in the same heart condition that David is expressing in Psalm 51. Much in the same way that me asking God for forgiveness in one condition of heart, a stubborn and arrogant heart, I can say the words, God forgive me of my sin. But if I'm not repentant or genuine or sincere, my words don't have some magical power over God to force him to forgive me. Just like offering an animal in the Old Testament did not somehow magically force God to forgive somebody of their sins. But in genuineness of heart, if I repent and turn to God in faith, according to the knowledge that I have of Jesus, then God will fulfill his promises. In the same way, when somebody like David appealed to God for forgiveness, even if David did not obviously fully grasp the principles of Christ and Christ's suffering and Christ's blood, really being the means through which he was receiving forgiveness, in the same way, the genuineness of David's heart would appeal to God, recognizing his need for something greater than just what animal blood could provide. So was there forgiveness in the Old Testament? Yes. Was God willing to forgive them just as we are forgiven? Yes. But that forgiveness was based not in the animals, but in Jesus, just as it's based in that for us today. The difference is that how much more clearly we're able to understand, how much more intimately we're able to be unified with that sacrifice is incomparably greater. And that's verse 5 through verse 10. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 through verse 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So verse 5 through 7 quotes another psalm, and that's Psalm 40. I think one of the key things about the quotation of the psalm, especially in the context When you look back, if it's even on the same page, chapter 9, verse 14, Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Were animals able to offer themselves? Were animals able to be willing participants in the sacrificial process? Were animals able to make any kind of righteous decision that would in any way relate them to the kind of heart condition Jesus had when he was on the cross? No, animals were thoughtlessly involved. They were forcibly taken to the temple. Whereas the quotation in the Psalms, I think, ultimately is conveying that the only sufficient sacrifice was a willful sacrifice. A sacrifice where someone takes it upon themselves to offer themselves as a living sacrifice to God. Somebody who's, who understands God's will and has taken it to heart. Go back to Psalm 40, if you would. Um, There's a couple of verses in Psalm 40 that I think are uh, important to take note of in the midst of this. Uh, Looking back at Psalm 40. So if you look at verse 8, immediately after the quotation, it says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within 
my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. So relating the ideas of that psalm again to Jesus as it's related to him in the quotation in Hebrews chapter 10, you think about the difference between Jesus' condition of heart and an animal. An animal didn't have the ability to make even a decision to sin, but Jesus did. And just as the Hebrew writer has already established that Jesus being tempted in all things chose not to sin, but to continue to do God's will and to perfect that will through his suffering, he then is uniquely able to offer himself as a true, adequate sacrifice to, in verse 10, sanctify us through his offering. So in verse 11, the significance of what's brought to us through that offering is going to be made even more clear. One of the things that I think um, is important to note before we read verse 11 through 19, an animal can't turn you to understand the will of God like Jesus can either. So because Jesus had within himself the law of God, resonating from his heart and abounding and exuding from his heart while he was dying on the cross, we are able to explore the will of God by meditating on the sacrifice of Christ as we ourselves strive to imitate him. And Jesus' sacrifice gives us a new direction for our lives. Jesus' sacrifice is able to teach us about the need to put away our identity apart from God. Jesus' sacrifice is able to teach us about the vanity of our thoughts and our ways apart from God. Jesus' sacrifice is able to teach us about the depth of God's love in that sacrifice. And all of that then is able to give us a new will and a new direction inherently by the living nature of what was being offered. So verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us with the veil, that is his flesh. Stop there. So Jesus is sacrificing himself on the cross, is able in verse 14 to perfect us in sanctification, to lead us to see the depth of his love, to lead us to see the depth of sin, to lead us to see the greatness and the glory of the righteousness of God, to help us to see eternity and the nature of our eternal lives with God, to help us to see the value of our identity with God and how desperately God has sought after us to reconcile us, 
The sacrifice of Jesus teaches us about the seriousness of God's covenant, the exclusiveness of that covenant, the cost of that covenant in ways that should lead us to continue to serve God more and more deeply in whatever circumstances we may be in, no matter how various or different they may be. And in verse 19 and 20, really the concluding point is he was alluding to at the beginning of chapter 9. The significance of where we now are because of all of these things. Did you catch what he's saying in verse 19? You know, we may be dwelling on earth, we may be going to jobs and school and just whatever else we may be involved in. But where are we really? In verse 19, the climax of this whole chapter, the whole context leading up to this about Jesus' priesthood and his suffering. The climax is that this little room where only one man could enter once a year and even then in the fear of his life, this dark little room that he would enter in with blood that was not his own and he would go in there with resolution of redemption, this little room that was in the presence of God's throne and this covenant, this Ark of the Covenant signifying God's loyalty and faithfulness to his people, the point that the writer is making, we are dwelling We are eating, we are drinking, and we are breathing in the most holy place. That when we wake up in the morning, when you go to work, when you lay down to sleep, when you're eating your meals, when you're laying down for leisure, Jesus has brought you into the most holy place. That is a very special place. The point that the Hebrew writer is making is simply to not take for granted the place God has placed us, how much it costs to put us there, how much he's done to signify the value of that position. We are before the throne of God. The grand point of this lesson is simply humility and reverence. You imagine when somebody is serving before the throne of a king. You imagine the humility of recognizing the seriousness of that position and that role. How much different would my life be if I recognize that continuously every day, I am serving God right before his throne, that I'm in the presence of the king in everything that I'm doing, how much would that shift my mentality and change my perspective in all that I do? And that my presence before the king was bought by the blood of his own son and by the giving of the body of his son filled with his will when he died. That's the lesson for this afternoon. We'll pick up on verse 19 again and begin there again the next time we look at Hebrews chapter 10. But if you're here and you need the prayers of the saints for any reason, if there's anything that can be done to continue to bring you closer to God and just increase your comprehension of the value of what God has done, if there's any barriers you recognize you've put up in your life by sin, don't let any moment go by to continue to dwell in the most holy place with a pure conscience and a clean heart. If there's anything we can do for you, bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.